Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. I'm Chris North and what you're about to listen to was originally broadcast as part of Pythagoras' Trousers, a science and engineering show on Radio Cardiff. You can find a full show and listen to past episodes at pythagorastrousers.co.uk. But for now, here's this month's astronomy. Well, we've had another mission to Mars launch this month. It wasn't a NASA mission as many of them have been. It was a European Space Agency mission, the first part of a pair of missions called ExoMars. So to talk about that, I'm joined by Edward Gomez again. Hi, Chris. So ExoMars is a, a two-part mission. We've had the first part launch uh, earlier in March. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting that it's being uh, billed as a two-part mission. I mean, there's been uh, quite a lot of many-part missions uh, in uh, European and indeed NASA history, like all the Apollo missions and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, so ExoMars, uh, the it's a it's a partnership between the European Space Agency and the the Russian Space Agency Roscosmos, um, and uh, its uh, initial phase um, launched on the fourteenth of March on its way to Mars now, and uh, it has an orbiter and a lander uh, on this on this part. It's a very small lander. The orbiter's going to be looking at the, the atmosphere. The lander's just going to test the landing mechanism. Yeah, that's right. The orbiter is going to effectively sniff Mars's atmosphere. It's looking for trace gases, particularly interested in looking at methane, uh, because a, a main objective of the ExoMars Mars mission is to look at the uh, p- biological suitability uh, in the past of, of Mars to host life. And one of the things that the, one of the reasons methane is interesting is because there've been there've been hints at methane in, in in Mars's atmosphere from previous satellites and from the, the Curiosity rover that there are little uh, clouds of methane. It would appear little puffs of methane in in the atmosphere. We don't know how long they lang- they hang around for, whether they're there for long periods or whether they come and go. But methane's interesting because it should disappear, which means they're there. It's being created somehow, and how it's created is the real key to whether it's biological or not. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, to have something persist in creating uh, methane, uh, you know, there aren't any farting cows on Mars, no. as far as we know. Uh, but you know, that could be indications that there are there are processes on Mars that we don't fully understand. Uh, methane, I think, is also uh, produced in. Uh, volcanic activity so you know maybe there's something underneath the surface of mars that's driving this uh it, but it could be it, it'd be very exciting if it had a biological origin the way to tell them apart or one way to tell them apart is to look at the other gases produced at the same time so if it's geological activity under the surface these sort of volcanic like processes are producing methane it will produce one set of gases and if it's biological if it's bacteria uh, producing the methane as a result of churning up other processing other elements and, and molecules then it will produce a different set of molecules in the atmosphere and that's one of the things that the trace gas orbiter is going to look for yeah exactly it's an exciting mission to have the, the orbiter there it's going to have a camera on board get lots more pictures of the surface of mars of course it's great to have a european presence again we've got mars express there already uh, of course the lander that goes with it this entry descent and landing test uh, is is just to test the landing procedure that's going to be used in a couple of years for a much bigger lander and this is a, a rover yeah, that's right. And uh, I have actually seen one of the prototypes of the, the lander and, and rover um, in uh, Aztec in the Netherlands. Um, the uh, the rover is going to be quite a bit larger than all of the other rovers that have that have been on Mars. Um, I suspect it's going to have a larger range uh, than the previous ones as well um, and be able to cope with with different terrains, too. 
Um, an interesting thing about uh, this whole mission as well, it ties in with uh, Tim Peake, because uh, one of the things that Tim Peake's going to be doing on the space station is, in fact, he did it, I think, this week, uh, was to remote control a lander. Ah. Uh, and uh, that's something which hasn't been done before. Uh, what tends to happen is uh, a, a route is programmed into the lander and it's download, it's uh, sent to uh, the, the rover and then it just goes off and does its, its little thing and it moves very, very short distances. Uh, what they're planning on doing is having uh, a remote control of uh, this ExoMars rover, which, given how far away Mars is, the lag is going to be incredibly large. So it's still going to be moving short distances, but but probably much further than uh, previous missions. So they typically seven to twenty minutes lag between the uh, when you something happens on Mars and when you then see it happen on on, on Earth, just because that's how long it takes the radio signals and, uh, to get here. So controlling it, as you say, is going to be very difficult. One one of the things the current rovers, the current generations of rovers do, so Spirit and Opportunity, and then now Curiosity as well on the surface, they've got automated surface that lets them go about 100 metres a day. So it'll be interesting to see if this does allow them to travel further, because you say it will extend the range, and that's one of the things that limits rovers on Mars is how far they can go. They, they see really small areas. Yeah, exactly. And so we've got a, an incredibly biased opinion of what Mars is like based on what they can do because they've really surveyed almost nothing now we talk about the habitability of mars and what this is this is going to do we, we as you say there were, there are were no cows on uh, on mars producing <laughs> methane uh we also we certainly don't see dinosaur bones or anything there's no large uh, yeah. very advanced life on the surface of mars that, that never has been as far as we can tell what there may well be at present or may have been in the past is this microbial life. And that's what ExoMars, the, the rover, is going to search for when it launches and then lands in 2018. And and that is a case of looking at the chemical processes that have altered the rock and not on the surface, but also deep down beneath the surface. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so a lot of these missions have drills uh, so that they can drill down and, uh, and test very far underneath the surface. Mars has a very thin atmosphere too, so you get um, uh, a lot of erosion uh, of that atmosphere by by sunlight and by whatever tenuous wind that they, it has. Uh, so really digging down beneath the surface is, is where, uh, if there is any life, that we're going to find it. So ExoMars is going to drill down about two metres, I believe, to, to beneath the surface, which is a very long way. Sort of, it's a uh... I guess oil, oil rig type technology to be able to drill down that far. It doesn't have a two meter drill bit stashed in the back, I assume. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see what the results are of that when it when it lands in a couple of years. Uh, the launch with the the Russian rocket seemed to go very well of this first mission. So fingers crossed that all goes well. Well, it hasn't gone as well as they would have liked. Uh, so the uh, the Proton uh, rocket, which is what launched it, which is a, a Russian rocket. Uh, when it's separated, it fragmented. So there is a cluster of particles traveling along with ExoMars, uh, and it very nearly uh, caused it considerable damage. And it's still not out of the uh, the long grass yet. So we just have to fingers crossed that really, um, because there's there's you know there's nothing powering mm. um, once it's separated. There's nothing uh, really powering uh, these these particles. So they. They can go wherever they like. Um, so we just have to be really uh, vigilant in watching. Uh, I presume that ExoMars has manoeuvring thrusters on it, uh, and, and it's still not in its final stage. It's still within a capsule. So hopefully that will protect it from any of these uh, 
quite sizable bits. We can see them from telescopes in Brazil. So if you think um, it launched uh, two weeks ago, how far away from it, it, how far away from us it is, and you can and you can see bits that have shattered from the uh, the rocket. It's quite worrying. So it's yeah, worrying for yeah. for ExoMars. It's going to add to the fleet there. We've got Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. We've got Mars Odyssey still there since 2001. The MAVEN mission is also looking at the atmosphere. That's a NASA mission. We've obviously got Opportunity and Curiosity on the surface. Yeah, In 2017, we get the launch of the InSight mission, I believe, which is going to look at the interior of Mars. And then ExoMars 2018. And 2020-2021 times get another mission from NASA to send a Curiosity-like rover to, to Mars. So it's exciting times. Yeah, NASA heard that the Europeans were sending a bigger rover, so... Uh... They uh, frantically found some money down the back of the sofa to make, send a bigger curiosity. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll see what all these all these bring back. It's not all been about Mars this month, of course. There was a a, a set of monster stars discovered, which is the, the name in the, the press release. Stars are obviously big compared to the Earth, and mi- millions of miles across, uh, typically millions of kilometers across. So, w- when we say monster stars. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about stars that are uh, 50 times the mass of our sun. They found dozens of these, uh, but they actually found nine uh, stars that are 100 times more massive than the sun. This is, a, this is colossal. Uh, it may seem that, you know, well, we'd expected this type of thing because we've uh, detected gravitational waves from black holes and the black holes were each about 30 solar masses. So the progenitors of the the, the, uh, the things that created those were probably about uh, 100 solar masses each. So it's good that we found actual stars that, that could produce these type of black holes that uh, that we then saw in gravitational waves. However, nobody knows how to make them. On a computer, nobody really has a good idea about how you make a star that's that's that massive. You get to about 30 solar masses, 30 times the mass of the sun, and uh, that's your limit in simulations. So it's a bit of a puzzler. Um, But, you know, maybe you can make the 100 times uh, mass of the sun star from combining three small ones or two small ones. Uh, when they're you know in their infancy before they really become stars um, maybe that's the way that you do it but it's uh it's it's very interesting that we've now found something that uh, really we've thought should be out there but we didn't really have a good explanation for well one of the reasons that we that we think they're hard to detect is is because they're very very rare uh, not not just because they don't form very often but also because they don't live very long so you have to really catch them at the right time these live for just just a mere few million years, which yeah. is, again, sounds like a long time, but compared to that, that's a thousandth the time of the the sun's lifetime. So it's it's not around for very long. Yeah, they're rare by by number, and they're rare because you have to. I mean, the universe has probably been making them since very very early on, but it's fourteen billion years old. So if it, even if uh, it's continuously making a small number of these stars you've got to be really lucky to look in the right place for to see these stars now i think one, one of the things you mentioned this, this 30 solar mass limit that's because the star itself lights up with its bright light and the strong wind of material stretching uh, pushing away and that pushes away all the stuff around it so it can't gather any more material and i think some of the studies show that 
you expect clusters of stars to be able to form these more massive things, but it's finding clusters where this has happened, which lets us test those computer simulations of groups of stars forming together. So this thing, this is in a large magnetic cloud, so it's 160, 170,000 light years away, pretty distant. Yeah. Needed the Hubble Space Telescope to see, I suppose. Yeah, but it, it, it is our nearest neighbour, though. They, the, so this is a, a galaxy uh, that is the closest neighbour. There's a pair of galaxies that are small and large Magellanic clouds, uh, which are um, the closest galaxies to our Milky Way galaxy. They don't look like the Milky Way. They're sort of they're clouds. They're, they're, they're about one percent the size, aren't they? They're they are. They're very small, and and they're uh, and and they're sort of cloud shaped. You can see them from the southern hemisphere. Edward, thank you. Right, thanks, Chris. In other biggest, brightest, furthest news, uh, there was a, a galaxy discovered further away than we've ever seen galaxies before. It's so far away the light's been travelling towards Earth for 13.4 billion years. So it was formed just 400 million years after the Big Bang. To find out more about this galaxy and what we know about how we observe galaxies, I thought I'd speak to Dr Tim Davis here in Cardiff, and I began by asking him, what do we know about galaxies? A galaxy is a collection of stars uh, and gas and other material uh, that exist together um, out there in the universe from very small galaxies that we see around our own Milky Way to very, very large galaxies that live in the centre of other dense um, clusters of objects uh, further out in the universe. So there's a big range in their properties. Um, they all essentially contain, uh, we think at least, dark matter mm -hmm. that forms the sort of skeleton of the universe um, and these sort of dark matter halos are the, the parts where the dark matter has really collapsed. And then, of course, gas and stars form in those uh, dark matter halos themselves. So, so, so dark matter is this, this weird material that we can't see. We can see its effects on, on gravity. Uh, on its, we can see its gravitational effects on other matter, on light and so on. And that's what controls where all the normal matter that we and stars and planets are, are made of uh, goes. And they form these galaxies, sometimes in big groups, and give us a sense of scale. So we live in the Milky Way, that's our galaxy. How, how big is our Milky Way? Uh, so our Milky Way is something like 20 kiloparsecs in size, so that's... Uh, About 100,000 light years? 100,000 yeah. uh, 100, light years in size, indeed. Um, so our galaxy is a fairly typical galaxy. It's fairly typical of the um, ensemble of galaxies in the universe. Uh, there are many smaller galaxies and fewer very large galaxies. That's just the way uh, the universe has worked out at the current day. Uh, but obviously, as you go back in time, the properties of galaxies change. And our, our galaxy contains about a trillion stars, or a million, million stars or thereabouts, which is clearly a big number. And, and, and a lot of, you mentioned gas and dust and lots of all this other stuff. The gas and dust is, is an important part of galaxies because that, that drives how they change over time as well. That's right. So the, the gas in galaxies um, essentially is its reservoir for future growth. So you form new stars out of the, the gas that you have present in your galaxy at any one time. So if you haven't got any gas, there's no way you're going to be forming any new stars. There's no way you're going to be evolving in anything but a very slow, secular way. Whereas uh, a galaxy with a lot of gas has a lot of potential for change in the future. And the gas we're talking about is hydrogen and helium, the, the primordial constituents of the universe but there's other little bits mixed in and that's one of the things that gets interesting about galaxies to look at what the other components of gas are they tell us a lot about those galaxies that's right so you're you have things like carbon oxygen and nitrogen which are produced in stars and pollute this primordial gas that we see 
uh, and the amounts of those tell us about how many generations of star formation that gas has been through. So the galaxies around us in the local universe tend to be quite rich, relatively speaking, in that uh, more enriched material. As astronomers, we like to call anything that's not hydrogen and helium metals, yeah. which is uh, quite a confusing way of doing it, but uh, it, that, that's what we do. Um, and these, this metal buildup of the universe is, is vital if we want to understand uh, where we get to today with the, the metals that we're all made up of. Uh, and it's important to say those, those heavy elements, those metals, the, the silicon, the oxygen, uh, the iron, the aluminium, all those things, that's what we're made of, that's what the planet's made of as well. So, so they're very important from a personal point of view in, the, in how the universe has changed, of course. Now, as we look further and further away through space, we're looking at light that's travelled for longer and longer. So if we look at something, say, a million light years away, we're looking at as it was a million years ago. It's taken a million years for light to get to us. But as we look at these vast distances, we start to see the universe when it was much, much younger. And as we look to these great distances, we essentially look back in time. How do we see things changing? Well, um, galaxies don't build up all in one go. They sort of gradually evolve over time. So the galaxies right now are massive. They're more metal-rich, so they've got more of these uh, uh, elements that we're all made of. Um, and their properties change as well. So uh, around us now we see a lot of galaxies with not very much gas left. They've kind of reached the end of their evolution, more or less. Um, but earlier in the universe, that's, that's not the case. Things are still forming and still evolving very rapidly. So you see a lot of very violent starbursts, we call them, where they're forming thousands of solar masses a year of new stars. Um, these things are very much more common in the, in the early universe because there's just not been the time for all the gas to convert, so you've still got everything going on. The galaxies are much more gas-rich and they're evolving very quickly. And they tend to be smaller. So a long time ago, the galaxies were smaller because they were still in the process of building up. You mentioned they contain a lot of gas and they're, they're forming stars. And our understanding of cosmology, our understanding of how the universe has changed over, over the last 14 billion years or thereabouts, has been that galaxies started off very, very small, um, but we didn't know when. We still don't really know when they started. We've just seen this, this new galaxy, this discovery of a galaxy just uh, 400 million years after the, the Big Bang. Why is finding a galaxy at that time surprising? So uh, there's the several surprising things about this, uh, this detection. The first one of these is, of course, this galaxy has formed a billion solar masses of stars. As you say, the, the Milky Way is a trillion, so that's not that large as galaxies go, but it's still a lot to have formed in only 400 million years. Uh, so we need to understand how you can make that many stars that early on in the universe. Also, the universe was much smaller then, it was much hotter, and in fact... At that epoch, a lot of the universe was actually opaque to radiation. So the, the cosmic microwave background that we uh, talk about, we see from uh, things like the Planck satellite, um, had, sh gives us an imprint of this process called reionization, where the early galaxies are supposed to uh, let us see through this fog of opaque gas and reionize it all to let photons stream free in the universe. Um, and that process at the sort of distances we're talking about, the ages we're talking about here, hadn't happened yet. The universe is still mostly opaque, so seeing a galaxy back then is quite a feat to see through this fog. Now, these things are so distant. How, how, do, we, how do we tell how far away these galaxies are? We don't just look at them with a, a camera. We use special equipment called spectrographs. How, how does that work? 
Yeah, that's right. So the, the spectrographs split up light um, based on uh, the wavelength that it emitted. So uh, you see spectral features. Um, so in this case, what they detected was the edge where you see um, atomic hydrogen beyond a certain point that blocks all the light, so you don't see anything at all. And then uh, the other side of that, you have starlight. Um, in this case, starlight that was emitted in the UV, um, but has now been red-shifted by this uh, distance that it's travelled, so it appears in the infrared, in fact. So the expansion of the universe has stretched the light, if you like, by a factor of 10 or so, about 11, 11 and a bit, in fact. Yes, indeed. So uh, you end up seeing this spectrum through the spectrograph that allows you to accurately determine the, the distance of the object from us or the, how early in the universe it, we're looking at it. And being so far away and so small, they're very faint, um, very hard to pick out. This needed the Hubble Space Telescope to, uh, to find it. We mentioned this has brought us a lot of surprises. What do we think the current state of play of, sort of galaxy evolution understanding is at the moment? What do we think is the state of play of that field? So finding galaxies at the highest redshifts was, uh, was uh, filled with a lot of history. So the, the Hubble Deep Field, which is where they pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at a, a patch of empty sky, essentially, and just let it integrate there for a long time. And suddenly you started to see all these galaxies coming out that you never knew were there before. And some of these are at very high redshifts indeed. So this is the sort of work that's been ongoing for the past 10 years or so. Um, picking out the very distant objects in these sort of surveys uh, and finding their properties and really working out how the universe is evolving based on the properties of the galaxies that we see. So um, there is a lot more work still to be done. It's still very technically challenging. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope that's due to launch in a few years will really be a, a revolutionary instrument for this sort of thing. It's uh, the types of light that it's optimised to see uh, are the ones that really allow us uh, to look at that light that's been stretched and shifted by these high redshift galaxies very accurately. So that's going to be a real step forward here, along with the W first mission, which is uh, essentially a, another Hubble Space Telescope that uh, uh, the US government managed to find down the back of the couch uh, <laughs> and will launch uh, hopefully in, I don't know, 10 years' time, something like that, uh, which is also going to do a lot of surveys to really sort of push this systematically so the James Webb Space Telescope is due for launch in a couple of years, 2018. So fingers crossed for a successful launch, a very ambitious program. And uh, I'm sure we'll get lots of interesting uh, results coming out of that and learn more about these first galaxies and first stars. So for now, Tim, thanks very much. Thank you. In terms of observing this month, the highlight is Mercury visible in the evening skies just as the sun is setting. But we'll talk more about that next month because the 9th of May is the transit of Mercury when you can see Mercury transit across the sun and how to do that safely. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It was originally broadcast on Radio Cardiff as part of Pythagoras' Trousers.